is over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to you, or for to this, you were called. It's part of our calling. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, who, you know, in, in his mouth there was no guile. But still he, was, he went to the cross, and so we're to follow in his footsteps and his example, right? And then over, some, nobody said right, you didn't agree. But then over in uh, chapter 4, the scripture we read uh, Friday night, you know, it says, Don't be shocked, beloved, do not think it strange concerning all the fiery trial which is to try you, as though something strange has happened, but rejoice, therefore, that you partake of Christ's sufferings, so that when his glory is revealed, you also can be glad with exceeding joy. And then it goes on. Yeah, there's an amen. And, and then over, you know, it's all in the scripture. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him give glory. Let him glorify God. And it's amazing. That is all in the context for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of the Lord. It is not by accident that all of this is in the same context. And then it says, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? And therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, say the will of God. The will of God? That's exactly what it says. Commit their soul. Why does he say commit their soul? Because we said last week, you know, don't fear the one who kills the body. But after they've killed the body, there's nothing more they can do. Fear the one who can toss the body and soul into hell. Fear God. So it says, you know, commit your soul to him who in doing good, that means God is always good. Always. All things work together for good to them that love God. Commit to him in doing good as to a faithful. How many of you know he's a faithful creator? He's faithful. He's going to be faithful to the church in America. I personally believe that this message that he's bringing is not only on time, we're going to see things begin to manifest rather quickly in America. Another way that this, and this is the way ministry's been around here. I'm so glad you guys have come to see this for yourself. But God always confirms the people he sent this way. And so just, was it Thursday? I got a text from our friend Mel Torrey. The evangelist, you know, that goes all over the world. He's 80s or whatever. But Roland and Heidi Baker's church was burned in Mozambique. And Roland sent this message out, letting people know what's happening. How they're pulling people off the road, their roadblocks. And uh, they're giving them, if they're Muslim, they can pay a tax and then go on. If they're Christian, they have to renounce their faith in Jesus on the spot. Or behead, be, be beheaded. And if they renounce their faith, they still have to pay the tax and then they can go on. This is happening right now. And anyway, I got that text. I thought, wow, God, it, another speaker that comes to the gathering that you've sent our way. And we've always said, we don't, the people that just went, 
you can go hear them all you want. I want the people that God has sent with the thus saith the Lord. And that's the way we've been around the gathering. This way we, it's, it's, so this is a sent word. Thank you for coming, guys. We're going to turn them loose here in just a moment. I want to receive the offering. I'm going to pray. But if you didn't hear Friday night or Saturday, you need to go back and listen. You need to listen. If you plan on being an overcomer in the days to come, listen. You know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word, not by, you know, whatever, feeling good about anything. Oh, one more thing. I thought this morning, you know, he's preaching the real gospel. I'm convinced many churches in America are not preaching the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. They're preaching that which makes them feel good. Do you know the wages of sin is death? That's part of the gospel. The gift of God is eternal life, the free gift. For the free gift of God to become a value, and you fully understand what that means, you have to understand that the wages of sin is death. In the American church, they want the free gift, but they don't necessarily want to emphasize. The wages of sin is death for a nation, for individuals, for families, whatever. It's like the judgments. If you leave the judgments of God out, you have left out a big portion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went to the cross. He was judged for our behalf. Anyway, anyway, I'm fired up about all this stuff because I know God sent Andrew here, if nobody else, for me and Shirley. Because this is the gospel I've always believed. And we've tried to uphold that standard around here. And wherever we go, I'm willing to go to the nations right now. I can't wait. I'm ready to go. So here am I, Lord, send me. Well, what if they pull you off the side of the road and give you a choice? So be it. How many of you would say, so be it? So be it. Eternity is a long time to sacrifice for just a little bit of freedom, your time left on earth. Live for him. For if you live for him, if you die, you shall live forever. If you deny him, he'll also deny you. So anyway, I can't wait for Andrew to come. Lord, bless the offering this morning. Thank you for Andrew and Noreen. Thank you for sending them, Lord. I am so appreciative. Thank you that you've used this place to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, the real gospel of the kingdom, which is more than just feel-good gospel. It is the dying-to-self gospel in order that you might live and forever dwell with him. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Bless everyone that's watching, Lord. Lord, those that hadn't been here these days, let them get caught up quickly in these next whatever minutes. Let him get caught up. And make us a powerful people of God in this nation, in this time and season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, several of you have uh, come up to us uh, during our time here and said that you've been praying for, for us, uh, for me during my imprisonment. So I want to thank you. Thank you for doing that. I, I really needed it. And I'm very grateful for it. Uh, but I also want you to know that God does not need millions and millions of people praying for me to get me out of prison. Uh, that's what happened. So there was something much more significant that he was doing with that. Uh, you were praying for me, but he was using me as a lightning rod to draw in your lightning prayers. <laughs> draw it in. 
to diffuse it into uh, Turkey, which was the head of the Muslim world for centuries. And there's going to be a great move of God in that land, but also a move of God in the whole area that Turkey ruled in the name of Islam. So in the Balkan countries, the Middle East, North Africa. And uh, the, the, the prayer that God, uh, this, this prayer movement, God initiated it, he drove it, he sustained it, and uh, he did this for a purpose. And one of the major things we're gonna see, we, we don't really see all the pieces now, but someday we're going to see how he uh, was using all of this prayer to, as part of the preparation for this great harvest that's going to take place in, in, uh, in the old Turkish empire in a large part of the Muslim world. So I just want to encourage you with that. I'm grateful personally, but it was much bigger than just praying for me. So thank you. Um, so in 2007, <coughs> Uh, Noreen and I had already been in Turkey for a number of years, but I, I began to pray in a different way. Uh, and I call this the wave starter prayer. That's uh, uh, a prayer that changed my life. That's the name of our ministry now. It comes from back in 2007, this prayer that uh, changed my life. And this is how I, I prayed. It's, I believe it's a prayer God put into my heart, into my mouth, because I was praying better than I knew at the time said, Father God, draw me so close to your heart that you'll be able to trust me with the authority to start waves. So what I wanted to do, you know, Noreen and I are in the largest unevangelized country in the world. We want to start, start waves of the Holy Spirit, start waves of the kingdom of God. You know, most Turks have never met a Christian. There are very few churches. Most cities don't have even one single church. And so we want to see God move in that place. And I'm, I'm saying, oh God, I need spiritual authority. I need gifts. I need anointing. I need all of those things in greater measure. So, so give it to me. Give me that spiritual authority that I need so that I can start waves. And that's what I'm focused on. And then God refocused me on the first part of that prayer. That's why I said he put that prayer in my mouth. And the first part is, Father God, draw me so close to your heart. And he focused me on a pursuit of his heart. So we, we had already loved God for years. We had a level of intimacy with him. It's not as though we had none of that. <coughs> but we began a much more earnest pursuit, Noreen and I together, a much more earnest pursuit, intentional pursuit of the heart of God. Uh, we started to pursue intimacy in, in a new way with more focus and intensity and really we sh reshaped everything that we did, all of our ministries, to focus in on the number one thing which was intimacy with God, running after his heart. And we became very presence focused. So, when we talk about loving God, sometimes it can be very abstract. Uh, for me, it was very practical. And this is how I started this pursuit of running after presence, of running after God's heart. I, I, I said, God, I don't love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I just don't, but I, but I want to. And, you know, the psalmist says, as a deer uh, pants for the water, so my, my soul longs after you. I said, I don't. I don't long for you, but I want to. So make me thirsty, make me hungry for you. And as we prayed this again and again, just week after week seeking him, then he started to make us hungry. I started to become more hungry. Uh, and we started to long for his presence. 
And this pursuit of God, uh, it, it positioned us. First, the, the pursuit is what shapes us. And it began to shape our hearts and it positioned us so that we could receive assignments from God. I, I would say, you know, at, the closer we are to his heart, the more he can trust us with assignments. And so this was positioning us to receive assignments from him, including the prison assignment. So I don't think that God put me into prison. I think this was a satanic attack. But I came to see that God was very involved in the whole process of my imprisonment. He fully intended to use it for his purposes. Now, uh, for those of you who were here yesterday afternoon, morning, you already know this, but for those who don't, I broke in prison. Uh, yesterday I talked about how that happened and the process through which God rebuilt my heart. But I broke during that first year in prison. I broke emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually, and I almost didn't make it. Uh, the second year, the first year was a year of breaking. The second year was also a very difficult year, uh, but it's, it was a year of rebuilding. God rebuilt my heart. Now, when God allowed me to be thrown into prison, he knew that I was going to break. He knew that I would go right up to the point of failure. He knew how much I would struggle. He knew it would be very painful for me. Uh, he, he knew how difficult it was going to be. And he did it anyway. He can do what he wants. And I think, God, why, why knowing how difficult it would be, knowing how I would go right up to the point of failure, why, why, did, why did you, why, why? And after I was released from prison, during my time in prison, I felt like I was experiencing very much the silence of God, <clears throat> uh, felt abandoned by him. But after, after I was released from prison, just I, I felt like the word, Lord spoke to me something very short, but he just said that he had trusted me with a difficult assignment. And that kind of changed somewhat my perspective of prison. <laughs> it's like, oh, you... You mean you were honoring me? You were trusting me with the difficulties. It, it didn't feel like an honor at the time, I, but, but now I, I can see that. Uh, so I think that, I think he allowed this to happen knowing and the extent to which I was tested. He did this because I think he knew that he could trust me. Now, I did not think that I could be trusted with this. I often, I mean, I, I, I told God, you know, people say you don't make mistakes, but in this case, you really did make a mistake because, <clears throat> because I'm not the right man for this. I'm very weak, I'm broken, I can't handle this. Uh, but, but I think that, that God knew that even though I would be severely tested, that, uh, that he could trust me because of my pursuit of his heart over the years, because of how that had shaped me, because of that pursuit of intimacy with him. So this is uh, an important truth that I, I want to underline, is that love fuels our endurance. Love is what drives and fuels faithfulness, especially in difficulties. This is it's loving someone that makes us willing to undertake risk and hardship and carry burdens, uh, and, and to suffer, because love, love doesn't quit. Now, a lover is willing to endure a great deal for his beloved. We know that, uh, well, a lot of movies are about this, right? The, the romances and, 
and a lot of literature is about this, how love will drive a man to incredible lengths for the one he loves. And we know just on a personal level, many of us who are parents, that mothers and fathers often will sacrifice themselves for the good of their children. And this is driven by love. So in my case, I see the example of my wife, of Noreen. And uh, we were held together for two weeks, so she experienced a taste of what it's like to be locked up and, and helpless. And when she was released after those two weeks, uh, people we really respect here in the States, spiritual leaders, uh, told her, Noreen, you need to come back to the States. Leave Andrew. Let God take care of Andrew. You need to take care of yourself. And this was not bad advice. There was some wisdom in that. But, but she said, I'm not leaving my husband. And the reason she did this is because, well, she knew how difficult this was going to be for me, that I was going into crisis. She was the only person who was allowed to visit me during my imprisonment. <coughs> and uh, so, so she said, I, if, if God tells me to leave, then I'll leave. But it has to be really, really clear, like, like at the level of an angel comes and tells me. Now, I know here, maybe you're used to that, but anyway, no angel came to tell her, thank God. But, uh, but this is what she said, I, I have to have such a level of clarity, otherwise I'm staying here with my husband because, why? Because she loves me. So she placed herself at personal risk. That's the point, is there was personal risk. That's why leaders were encouraging her to leave. She could be locked up again. We didn't know what could happen to her, but she placed herself at personal risk because of her love for me. So yes, a lover is willing to suffer for the one that she loves. An admirer may not be so willing. You don't want to marry an admirer. They may not stick through the difficulties. So God has many admirers. God even has many servants, but he doesn't have many lovers. And so determine that you will be a lover of God, that you will run after his heart. So I want to give some examples of how my love for God, <coughs> how my love for God fueled uh, my faithfulness in prison. So one day I was reading in uh, Philippians and a verse just drove into my heart. Uh, Paul says, everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And, and this just really hit me because I said, and I started to cry uh, because I thought, this is me. I'm, <laughs> my interest is to be with my family. The Turkish government has said, you know, they're going to give me three life sentences uh, with no possibility of parole and solitary confinement. And I just, I'm desperate to, to, to see my family again, to be with my wife, to be with my children. And that is what was driving me. And this was the, what gave me a great, what caused a great deal of my, of my grief, my sense of loss, and also fear. And, and I'm thinking, this, this is really my priority. This is my great interest. But what if the interests of Jesus are best served by my remaining in prison? So this began a fight for me of, of uh, heading towards surrendering my interests and uh, embracing the interests of Jesus, even if that is very much against my interests, even though it will cause suffering for me. And so this is what it looked like. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd start my day in prison, which the days can be very, very long. And, uh, 
<laughs> Tell Noreen it feels 10 times longer than a day outside. It's just, it drags on. And uh, I wake up with, with fear and with dread and a sense of, of uh, hopelessness, and I begin to fight. And I'm fighting to get to the point where it's, I cannot embrace prison, but I can embrace serving the, perp- the interests of Jesus. And so I'm fighting to get to that point where I say, I'm willing to remain here if that is what serves your interests. I don't want to be here. And, and if you want me to remain, then you have to give me the strength so that I can endure because, because otherwise I'm too weak and I cannot. But I, I, I want to get to that point where I say, I'm willing to serve your interests. And if your interests are best served by my remaining here, then here I am. And usually by the end of the day, I would get to that point. This is in my second year. I'd get to that point of, of that surrender, and I'd come into a measure of peace. Not the level of peace that many of you would expect. A measure of it. The most peace that I could have in prison. And then I'd get up the next morning, and I'd have the same fear, and the same despair, and the same sense of helplessness, and I'd begin that fight all over again. Again, po- heading to that point of surrender. Now, what is it that drove this, that drove me to to surrender and to go through that process again and again of saying, I'm willing to stay here if it serves your interest? It was very simple. It was love that drove this. It wasn't emotion, because emotionally, I want to be outside with my family. It was a deep love that drove this surrender. It was because of my love for him. Also, you know, for many months, I had a difficult time uh, worshiping uh, God. When I was first transferred into high-security prison, uh, I felt very betrayed by God, uh, and I was already in, uh, my heart was deeply offended and wounded toward Him. And, uh, but in spite of that, I, inside of me, I just had this uh, drive. I, I knew that I, should, that I should be worshiping Him and singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. You all know that, that hymn. Great is, great is your faithfulness. <clears throat> and I was willing to sing it. And so I would start, great is your, and I could not get it out of my mouth because I would choke up and start sobbing. I wasn't unwilling to, but I was so broken and wounded toward God because I felt like you haven't been faithful and you've actually You've abandoned me. And I, I was so deeply hurt by this that I would just start to sob. And I couldn't get it out of my mouth. So a year later, when I'm in, I'm in maximum security prison now, they transferred me there for my own safety, I think, uh, to maximum security. And each prison has different rules. And Noreen looked at the list of things that prisoners are allowed to have and you, do you know you're allowed to have a canary if you're in maximum prison? <laughs> maximum security prison. But also on the list, they said you could have a guitar. Uh, not a steel string, but a, you know, a classical guitar, which they did not allow at the other prisons. And so she immediately went and got one and brought it and dropped it off at the, you know, the guards deliver a guitar to me. And she said to me, Andrew, you need to worship. I was a worship leader for years. She said, you need to recover this part of your life with God. And so I made a decision. I am going to worship. Uh, and I, and every, every evening for half an hour or an hour, I would say, I'm going to worship. I'm going to sing. And it, I didn't feel like singing. 
many times, but I, but I worshiped anyway. And, and I think that, uh, that this was very precious to God, my, my worship in the dark night of my soul. It wasn't in a, an environment like this where you have other people who are encouraging and you're feeling good. It's more like in my darkness and in my despair, I choose to worship. And this was a very um, precious soft sacrifice to the Lord, a sacrifice of worship. A friend of ours, uh, Rick Ridings, was telling us about, uh, he runs a house of prayer in Jerusalem, Sukkot Halel, uh, he and his wife Patricia, and he was telling us about uh, his daughter Esther who uh, had a very painful cancer and, uh, and died. And after her death, she, for a few minutes, uh, after a few minutes, they were able to resuscitate her, uh, revive her, however you say it. And she was then alive for another few weeks until she uh, died for the final time. Uh, during those few minutes that she was dead the first time, she met with Jesus. And he did a life review. I don't know, time works differently, but it was like she watched a movie of her life and he highlighted things throughout her life that were very important to him. So she had been a worship leader and she'd recorded an album that was even popular in the UK and she thought that Jesus was gonna say, wow, Esther, this was a great album, thank you. Thank you for making this album for me. He didn't even mention it. But this is what he underlined. One of the things he highlighted throughout her life was the times that she worshiped him in her pain. The painful cancer, she had a Down syndrome, young child who she knew she was gonna leave behind, and just the pain of this. And when in her pain and suffering, she still worshiped him, and Jesus said to her, you'll never know how much this meant to me. You'll never know how this touched my heart. So our worship to him in, in, the darkest, in the darkness, in the dark night of our soul, when we're not feeling those emotions, when the emotions, what happens when the emotions are gone? That is so precious to him. And what is it that drove me to night after night worship in that prison? With those three life sentences hanging over me, not having any idea that I'd be getting out. It was my love for him. It was love that drove that worship in the dark night of the soul. In my second year, that's also when I developed this discipline of dancing before the Lord. I mentioned that on Friday, but for five, I decided for five minutes a day, I'm going to dance before the Lord. Now, why did I do that? It's because Jesus said in Matthew 5, he says, blessed are you when people revile you. And uh, oh my goodness, I'm having a blank. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things about you in economy. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven for the same way they treated the prophets who came before you. And so I, had, I realized that I had not rejoiced at all. I was just complaining. And I, I did not rejoice, and I realized this is a matter of obedience, and I haven't done it, therefore I'm going to perform an act of obedience. I'm going to perform an act of rejoicing. And so I would go out and I'd dance around. Is this how you dance in your church? You, you can dance. Anyway, so I would go and dance around 
And the other, you know, people think, what's wrong with him? He really has lost it now. He's gone insane like we thought he would. And so I would dance around and I would sing those verses, blessed am I when people, you know, persecute me, revile me and all those things. And then I'd get to the point where rejoice and be glad. And I would leap and I would say, I've, this is me leaping. I can't leap very high. <laughs> I, you know, I'd leap and I'd, say, I, I, I'd jump and I'd say, I rejoice because I'm suffering. I rejoice because I'm in prison. I rejoice because... You know, great is my reward in heaven because the prophets also suffered. Now I can suffer like them. And I, I did this when I, I did this many days when I, I never felt like doing it, I'll be honest. I never, it, I, this was not from my emotions. I don't want to dance. You know, I'm in, I'm in prison. I'm isolated. I'm miserable. I have fear and dread. But why am I dancing? Well, because, because Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And so actually what, I was, what was driving this was love. I love him, and therefore I want to obey him. And he says to rejoice. Therefore, I will perform an act of rejoicing. This is driven out of love for him. Because I love him, I want to obey him. So these are examples. How many times I think of of. You know, I, I said, I just want to be a good son to my Heavenly Father. And then, then I push forward to surrender one more time, uh, to, to force myself to look toward heaven one more time, even when I'm confused and, and don't understand. I force myself one more time to forgive those who are hurting me and who are hurting my family. And it's love that drove me to do all of these things. I mentioned, well, yesterday I talked about the offended heart, my wounded heart. I mentioned it today briefly. But love is also what helped me to overcome my offended heart. <clears throat> um, I'll just summarize. God, God didn't meet my expectations in prison. I expected to have strength and a sense of, of joy and of grace. But instead I felt weak. I felt grief. And I did have grace, but it was mainly an unfelt grace. And the greatest disappointment I had is that I mentioned to you how in 2007, you know, we began to, we began to run after the heart of God and we're running after presence and, and after intimacy. And, and we had many things happen as we ran after presence. We began to experience a lot of God's presence. We had an outpouring in our church. We had powerful manifestations of the presence of God. And we had a real presence, sense of presence in many of our meetings, just in worship, we had, I won't even begin to tell you, but it was, it was a very special environment. And so I had pursued this for years. I had experienced it. And this is why it was so painful to me when it was completely removed from me in the most difficult times. And so this was my great disappointment. You know, God, you, where is your presence? And so my heart was wounded. And I began to question God's existence. I accused his character. I uh, said, you're, you don't really love. You're not faithful. You're not good. You're not true. And so my doubts and my questions are suffocating my friendship with God. And what I most wanted from God was, was his presence. You know, I, I said when I first went into prison, if I have your presence, I can do anything. And so this is what I longed for. This is what I most wanted. And then I came to realize there's something that God really wanted from me. And he, what he wanted for me was a simple devotion, just a, 
a simple, basic, faithful love. He wanted to see if I would devote myself to him in spite of my questions, in spite of my doubts, in spite of my disappointments, in spite of his silence. And so he stripped everything away. Stripped away my friends, stripped away the the fellowship of other believers, stripped away my family. He stripped away every way in which I had experienced his love and his presence in the past. And all that was left is this core of love in my heart, a simple devotion, and I'm clinging to this in desperation. And it was this simple devotion, this basic love that overcame my offended heart. It's, it's this simple devotion that said, I lay, I lay aside all conditions that I've placed on you. I don't have to have answers to, to have a relationship with you. I'm just focused on loving you, and loving you is enough. It's enough just to love you. So love includes emotions. It's, love is part of emotions. But it's not limited to emotions. And love also expresses itself in obedience, in commitment, in surrender, in, in loyalty. And sometimes this is without emotion. It's much easier to feel good about God, uh, to have those emotions of love when I'm aware of his presence, when I'm experiencing his love in some way. But what happens when those are removed? As I said, what happens when the feelings are gone? And especially when we're under pressure. Then that's, that's when the love is tested. And my love for God was severely tested in prison. <clears throat> so after 18 months, um, after 18 months in prison, the Turkish government finally decided to put me on trial. And they took me from the maximum security prison where this healing had begun to take place, where my God had begun to restore my heart. And not by giving me his presence or speaking to me, but just through the disciplines that I had of running after him in spite of his silence and a number of other things. But that's where a lot of the rebuilding had taken place. And now they sent me back to the high security prison where I had broken so badly and I'd been suicidal. And this just, they sent me back there for my trial. The trial was going to take place at that prison. And when I arrived there, they tell me, well, you know, uh, welcome back here. We're going to take good care of you. Yes, yes, I know. I know what it's like. They put me into solitary confinement. I was on either side of me were the generals who had been accused of leading a coup attempt against the government. So my point in that only is that I was being kept with the, the people the government thinks of as the worst people. Uh, in solitary confinement, and I was told, you'll be here for the remainder of your trial, which could take, oh, three to five years, because it's a political trial. It can go on for a long time. And, and I thought, oh, no. Here, God has been rebuilding me. I've, I've, I've been, uh, here I'm back in this place where I broke, and this is triggering all of that trauma again. Now I'm back in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement can be very, very difficult. And then I'm, I'm, I'm put on trial. And I go into uh, the court session. It lasts for 13 hours. It's a pretty long session. And there are all these false witnesses saying all kinds of lies about me. 
And it doesn't matter, I know it doesn't matter how well I defend myself, it doesn't matter I have truth and facts on my side, this is a political case, so it doesn't make any difference. The decision's gonna be made at the highest level of the government, it doesn't matter what I say here. So there's this feeling of helplessness also, but just all of this, these awful lies being said and spread about me. And I hadn't eaten for a couple of days, I hadn't sleeping, I was, slept for a while, I was just really distraught. And uh, then I'm set, I, I, after this 13 hour uh, trial session, I go back to my cell and, and I'm breaking again. And I, I lie there and I'm, I'm, I'm crying. <laughs> I cried a lot in prison. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty devastated. And I, lie, I, I lay on the bed and I'm alone and I'm isolated and I have this great fear again and this terrible grief that's swelling up in me and I'm, and I'm just, I'm weeping aloud. And, and the thoughts going through my mind, it's kind of a prayer, <laughs> you know, where are you, God? <laughs> Why have you permitted them to return me to this terrible place? You know, where are you? Why haven't you intervened for me? Why are you so far away? Why are you still so silent? And I opened my mouth and I'm weeping aloud and then, and then I was surprised by what I heard coming out of my mouth. Because I heard, I love you, Jesus. And then again, I love you, Jesus. And again, I love you, Jesus. And it suddenly hit me. Wait, this is what victory looks like. This is victory for me. Because I'm not feeling this. I'm not thinking this. This is just what's coming out of my heart at one of the lowest points in my imprisonment, at a point of, of great brokenness. And I thought, this is my victory. Yes, I do love you. Even if you're silent, I love you. Even if you allow my enemies to hurt me, I love you. Even if you don't give me your presence, I love you. I still love you. And what I understood is that in some way, I had passed the test. I'd passed the test of God's silence, the test of solitude, of, of isolation, of seeming abandonment, of being alone without support, the test of unfelt grace, of weakness, of brokenness, of doubts, the test of the offended heart. You know, there's a difference between a soldier who who has been trained and has acquired skills, and another soldier who has the same training and the same skills, but has been in combat. I've been assured of this by military people. There is just a difference between them. And it's not a difference in skills. It's a difference, well, one has been through combat. One has been tested and comes out of that with a different confidence, with a different experience. And I think there's something similar in in the Christian walk. Yeah. Is it my, my love for God, before I went to prison, my love for God was real, it was sincere. But until it had been tested at this level, it was real but unproven. So until I actually went through the test, I had not proven that love. I think of Abraham, you know, until he lifts the knife up and he's ready to plunge it into Isaac. God may have known what Abraham was going to do, but until Abraham actually lifted his hand with that knife, he had not proven that he was actually willing to do it. So my testing and my victory 
It's precious to God and it's precious to me. And I discovered that there's an intimacy that only comes with testing. There's an intimacy that only comes with difficult testing. You know, some of the people I most admire in the Bible, I just mentioned Abraham, but think of Joseph, think of, uh, of Moses, of David. There are others as well. But I'm not going to go into their lives, but if you know their life stories, you know that, that they went through, each of them went through times of testing during which they experienced the silence of God. Moses thinks he's ready to, he's one of the best trained people in the world, and then he goes off and he's herding sheep for 40 years. I don't know that God was speaking to him all the time in those 40 years. I'm sure that he felt like betrayed, that he, you know, broken and had many questions. I'm sure that Joseph had many questions when he's in the dungeon. God, I thought that this was going to happen. What happened? And it went on for years. And David is hiding in caves when he was told he was going to be king. He was so close and then it's taken away. What's happening, God? And the thing is, see, we, we know the outcome. And so we don't think about the internal struggle they went through because, oh, yes, well, of course, David, but he became king. And of course, Joseph became the second in command of Egypt. And Moses led the people of Israel. But, but what about those years of silence when the things that God said or that they thought God said aren't happening and it goes on for years and years. They're people, they're human just like we are. And I'm sure that they had the same kind of questions and doubts, the same kind of internal struggle that we do when we're in the same situation. But what happened? They persevered through those times of silence and of, I don't know, not understanding. They persevered through them and they emerged eventually. They emerged faithful. And they emerged as friends of God. And maybe it's actually that process that they went through that qualified them in some way to become friends of God at a different level. I think, in a, sense, in a way, God takes risks when he thrusts us into darkness. Some people don't like the risk and God word together, like God never takes risks. But if, if we're able to talk about it in those words, it's seems that God takes risks sometimes when he thrusts us into darkness. If we respond in the right way, then we emerge proven and he can trust us with difficult assignments. And that is so valuable. But not everyone makes it through with an intact heart. Hearts get hardened. Love grows cold. We, we can end up crippled emotionally, I mean spiritually for life. I'm still a son, I'm still a beloved son, but maybe I'm not usable in the same way. So in a sense, God is taking a risk. You know, I don't know David very well. Does he have any spiritual gifts? Does he? Any anointing? Yeah, well, he does. And the, the thing is that, you know, God can so easily replace David's anointing and gifts. He can take it and give it to you and he can double and triple it in no time at all. That God isn't that impressed with, he doesn't need our gifts or skills or anointings. He doesn't need them. He can very, very quickly give them to someone and he can also elevate someone overnight. He can give them a platform, worldwide platform, overnight. So, but what he can't do is replace David's heart. He can't take David's heart and put it into you overnight. That's not possible because he's taken years to shape David's heart. 
There have been many difficulties and times of trial and remaining faithful and all kinds of things that have shaped him because I love David's heart. What I've seen of his heart, I, I really like. And that is immensely valuable to God. But that's something that he can't just, there you go, have this heart that David has. That takes time. That's relationship over a long time, building, building those things into the heart. And so the heart is very, very valuable to God. And so I think God is willing to, to let my ministry collapse. He's willing to remove me from position, remove success, if this is necessary to shape my heart. He can shape my heart through failures, too. He can shape it through success. And he's willing to, to, he's willing to take a risk by putting us into difficult tests because this will shape our heart and make it so much more usable and valuable to him. But I wonder how many people start out but don't pass the test. They become offended, they give up, or they count the cost and decide it's too high, or they end up with their love growing cold. But those who do pass the test, the tests of the heart, they're so valuable, and they're highly honored in the kingdom. And because then God can, God can trust their heart. He can put them into a position or not. <laughs> He can give them assignments, difficult assignments, or not. He, they're, they're, they're positioned and he can fling them into whatever thing he wants to because their heart is ready. So the heart is the most important victory for God. But if your heart fails, then it's a great loss. And so the proven heart is so valuable. It's so valuable. You know, somebody sent me a message that I, I really didn't like when I was early on in my uh, imprisonment. Sent it with Noreen. Uh, it was a verse from Jeremiah, and I really didn't like this verse from Jeremiah. Um, so Jeremiah is complaining. Um, he's saying, God, why are you treating me so bad? You know, you treat me so, so much more harshly than other people. And, uh, and, he, and he even says, God, you deceived me. And I think, I think this is what he may have meant, that, you know, God said, Jeremiah, he called him his prophet. And uh, who's the para- paradigmatic prophet of Israel? It's, it's Elijah, right? Elijah performs miracles. His enemies, he calls down fire from heaven and it burns them up. And Jeremiah may, may have thought, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to be a prophet. That sounds good to me. And, uh, and he becomes a prophet. And you, if you know Jeremiah's life, it's the complete opposite. He had no miracles, and he's persecuted, and God allows him to be really, really badly persecuted and, uh, and doesn't rescue him. <clears throat> and Jeremiah's thinking, God, I, this isn't what I signed up for. Why are you treating me so badly? Why do you allow so much difficulty in my life? And God, God answers him. He says, Jeremiah, if you've raced with men on foot and they've worn you out, how can you compete with horses? So, see, my first thought when I read that verse, someone said it to me, is, why would I want to compete with horses? <laughs> right? I mean, it's bad enough if you're competing against other people, you have to train for that. But who ever heard of a race between a man on foot and a horse? That you, you just don't do that. Who trains for that? 
And so, see, I was upset at this because I knew what this person was saying to me, what these verses mean. As God is saying, Jeremiah, if you can't, I'm going to put you through some very difficult things because I'm training you so that you can get to the level where you can run against horses. Why would I want to run against a horse? Well, sometimes we have to. Not everyone, but there may be some of you that God is going to take through a very rough training process, very difficult process, so that you can compete against the horses. Not for most people, but some people God is going to call into that. So I, d- I didn't really like the message because what it was saying is, Andrew, there's, God is going to take you through hardship to toughen you up. I don't want to be toughened up. I'm a soft son. I just want to sit in Papa's lap, right? I told him that. I just want to, because I'm into the Father heart of God. What, what does this mean you're going to toughen me up? And I've seen the harsh side of God. He's still loving. But, but he, can be, he can be hard. And sometimes you have no choice. Sometimes God does give you a choice. If, are you going to submit to that kind of hard training? Are you going to persevere through it? So not everyone is called to compete against the horses, but some are. And we're going into a difficult time. And there will be more need in the body for those who have been trained up, who have gone through these difficulties and have proven themselves and will be able to carry more difficult assignments in a very dark and perilous time. So this is how God often, how God trains his sons and daughters. He trains them through hardship. And so this is something to be aware of as we go through difficulties in life, is is our hearts are so valuable and they're so fragile in some ways. And you have to determine, I am going to endure. I'm going to keep loving. I'm going to embrace him even when I don't understand. What he's looking for is my heart responds to him that says, I, I'm going to love you when I don't understand. It's enough to love you. I'm going to keep on loving you. When the emotions are gone, when all sense of presence is cut off, when I'm in, these, in this dark night, I still am going to love you. So the question is, can God trust you? I started off saying, God told me he trusted me with a difficult assignment. Can God trust you? If he doesn't give you what you expect, if he doesn't give you what you think that you need, if he leaves you in silence, will you still devote yourself to him in spite of this? So I emphasize this because I think it's the most important thing. (laughs) What best prepared me for the hardships that I went through was that pursuit of God, of his heart over the years. And so I emphasize this because of the times we're going into, but also because Jesus said the most important thing you can do is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's so clear and simple and yet so difficult to do. This is because we don't naturally increase in love for God. We naturally decrease in love for him. We have to be intentional. Now, Noreen told me before I came up, Andrew, you're speaking about love to a place that's famous for loving God. Are you famous for loving God? Yeah, because Bob Jones said, you know, have you learned to love? And you have his grave here, you know, and I'm surprised you don't have a big sign. Do you have a sign that says that? Have you learned to love? 
outside. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, so, so you're kind of focused in on that and, and, and you're, you're aiming for it and that's, that's wonderful. Um, the truth is that this doesn't happen naturally. You have to cultivate it. You have to be very intentional about it. But I'm, I'm not too concerned about encouraging you in this area because I'll tell you why. Because I have my own experience. You know, there, there is one thing I miss from prison. Uh, you know what it is? It's the Turkish prison food. No, that's a joke. That's not true. <laughs> so there, there, is something, there is something I miss. I don't want to go back to prison, but there is something I miss from prison. And what? Uh, well, I wouldn't call it fellowship because that's two ways. And uh, it was mainly me toward him. But, uh, but this is what happened, is that uh, the conditions of my imprisonment, uh, the, the isolation, the, the terrible loneliness, the fear, the uncertainty, those are the things that broke me. But the, those are the things that tested me. And they drove me to run after God. They drove me to cling to him as I never had before. I, I had an unusual clarity about what really matters. And I, I spent my days and my nights focused on God. I said, God, I want to be like the sunflower. It just The sunflower follows the sun, orients itself toward the sun throughout the day. And I said, I want to do that. I want to get up and put my eyes on you from the beginning and all the way through until I go to sleep because I'm so desperately needy of this. If I, I'm doing this for survival. And, but I ran after him as I never had before. I was so focused on God. And now I'm free. And I'm so glad to be free. I never want to go back to prison again. I don't have those pressures driving me anymore. And what I miss is the desperation with which I ran after him. And that's what I say to God. Oh God, I, I want to be desperate in that way again. I want to run after you with the same desperation. So the point is that we have to be intentional. Uh, it's a lifelong pursuit. And I say this to you, even though you're famous for this, because it's possible to even be in a group like this and, and kind of just start to coast. I know that too, because I've coasted a lot in my life. And not keep pressing in and saying, my, you know what, the most important thing, I've been, I've been feeling my age uh, more recently and my mortality for several reasons. And I was telling Noreen recently, you know, we're running around to, to different places. I want it to count. You know, I want it to have some significance. And I'm not sure that everything I'm doing has significance. And I don't know how much time I have. And, and I, so I feel that pressure. And then I thought, but you know, the, the truth is, the most significant thing I can do for God, what's most important, is to love Him. Doesn't matter if I'm in the Middle East or, you know, doing some mission or whatever. The most important thing, the most valuable thing that I'm doing is, is just loving Him. Now, I can love Him through ministering to others, but this is, what, this is what's valuable. This is what has eternal significance. It's just, it's, it's just loving Him. And if I'm doing that, then I'm, I have a life of significance according to God. And everything else that I do is maybe good, but the most important thing is just loving him. And today, the most important thing that you're going to do 
is to love God. And so I'm taking that risk of even telling you who are famous for this, press into this, run after the heart of God. So build this into your life. Focus on building this into your life, especially as we go into these more difficult times. Don't wait for that hardship. Don't wait for that dark wave to hit, to force you. Oh, that will help as well. I think, you know, there's a verse that I love from the Bible where it says God is going to seize the hearts of his people. And this dark wave that's coming, the the pressure that's going to come, God is going to use it. It's a satanic wave intended to destroy the church, but God is also going to use it to seize the hearts of his people. These difficulties will force many people away from God, drive them away rather, but, but for many of us, it's going to drive us to run after him. But let's not wait for that. Let's do it now and prepare our hearts ahead of time. Amen. And, and if Noreen were up here, uh, which she's welcome to do, but often I say it for her, uh, this is what she would say to you. That it's very simple. The best way to do this is to spend time with God. You know, I told you about 2007, we started running after God, you know, we're you know, pursuing his heart. And you know the story of the tortoise and the hare, you know, the rabbit and the hare. Well, I'm the rabbit, I'm the tortoise, and I'm just, I'm running, I'm with great zeal, you know, I get excited, I have an encounter with God, I'm just, yeah, rah, yeah. And then I start to kind of coast. And then I start to run again, let's go after encounter, I'm maybe experiencing God's presence, and then I coast again. And Noreen was different, she was the tortoise. And what she did is she was disciplined and intentional about setting time aside to be with God every day. And she did this when we had three young children. It's a very demanding uh, time. Uh, but she, she prioritized that. And she wasn't having all these amazing encounters every time she goes and spends time with God. But what she was doing is every day she was adding a little bit to, to a reservoir. And over time, it became deeper and deeper and deeper. And then suddenly unexpectedly, you're thrown into a cell. How do you plan for that? You don't. And then, so there's crisis. And then she begins to draw. She begins to draw from that deep, deep well. Now, I had my own well. It just wasn't as deep as hers. I forgot to say, the reason I I mentioned this is because we were locked up together, and I saw that she was doing better than I was. Now, we have different temperaments. There are different things that we fear. Uh, but, uh, so that accounts for some of it. But, but under the, the most important thing, I think, is that she just had a different, uh, a different uh, a, a deeper reservoir. And so what she said is, you know, I was not prepared, but I was not unprepared either. You can't prepare for everything you're going to face. It's very unhealthy to sit around thinking of all the possible terrible things that can happen to you. That's not good. <laughs> So we don't want to do that, but we may not be completely prepared for everything, but we do not have to be unprepared either. So what's the condition of your well? How deep is your well? So I say, pursue the heart of God. Make this your priority. Everything else, if you do this, is going to come into right alignment. It's not going to be easy, an easy life, but your life, everything in your life will be in the right alignment if you make that your priority. You know, a verse that's very much been on my heart is Daniel eleven thirty two. 32. Uh, and Daniel is, God is speaking through Daniel to the people who live in the most difficult times. He's speaking to us. And, and Daniel says, the people who know their God shall stand and accomplish exploits. 
The people who know their God shall stand and accomplish exploits. And I think as the American church, uh, we're a pioneering church. We have a very can-do attitude. Uh, We build things. And now that we've come through COVID, that crisis, uh, it's back to, yes, let's expand. There's this emphasis on growth and expansion again. And we do those things well. Um, The exploits. But what God is saying here is, The people who know their God shall stand and accomplish exploits. If you want to stand, you have to know your God. If you know your God, it's very likely you'll stand. If you know him, if you know his heart, if you've drawn close to him, you have that intimacy. That is what prepares you to stand. And I think that there's a temptation in, in, in the church in the U.S. to focus on the exploits. And... If you're not standing after that dark wave hitch, you're not going to accomplish any exploits. So sometimes people say, this is the time to really focus in on evangelism, after I've talked about this. Well, usually, first I start off explaining the dark wave that's coming, which I didn't do this morning, but it's coming. And the the response of some is, yeah, you know, I got your message. We really have to focus on evangelism. I think, no, you did not get my message. That is not my message. My message is you better focus on having a strong foundation You better focus on your own heart, preparing your heart, so that when that wave hits, you're standing. And if you're standing after that wave hits, then there's, we're going to be living in a time of great darkness with many people who are are hopeless in the dark. And if we want to be accomplishing exploits, God, God has a lot of assignments ready for us, but we have to survive that wave first. We have to emerge faithful from, from, from the persecution that's coming or through that persecution. And then we will be positioned so that God can use us for evangelism and to be the light in the darkness. And then many people will come in through that ministry. But before revival, there is the refining fire. And that's what I want to underline. Before we see that move into the kingdom in large numbers, first, there's a refining fire that we have to go through that's going to set us up so that the church is ready and pure and powerful and glorious and that can receive those, that harvest in. So right now is not the time to focus. Oh, we always do evangelism. I'm not against evangelism. I was a church planner for years. You know, we want to see the, we want to start waves. We still want to see that. But right now, the urgency of this hour is prepare your heart. Know your God. If you know him, you will stand. And then then the exploits come. Let's not reverse that. Let's get the order right. So I want to finish with one, one thing since I, I told you a little bit about my breaking. I also told you about uh, the wave starter prayer. And I want to go back to the wave starters because uh, Father God, draw me so close to your heart that you'll be able to trust me with the authority to start waves. And I told you how this was my pursuit for years, years, to draw closer to God's heart. And in this pursuit of intimacy, we especially focused on running after presence. I told you when I landed in prison, I said, God, if I have your presence, I can do anything. And that's what was most painful to me, was to lose a sense of God's presence. But a, a year or two after I got out of prison, the Lord spoke to me. <laughs> he occasionally does that to me. And he showed me, he really startled me. And it gave me a completely different perspective on my imprisonment. I had to 
think through it and evaluate it. But he said to me that he'd actually been answering my wave starter prayer throughout my imprisonment. And just in a way that I had not anticipated. You know, I was, I was too close to the battle. I was too overwhelmed by the immediate to see what God was actually doing. And this is the mistake I made, and I think most of you probably didn't catch it, just the way that I didn't, is I asked, you know, God to draw me close. Father God, draw me so close to your heart. And then I pursued presence. And I equated presence with knowing his heart. <clears throat> They're not the same. Presence is important. Experiencing his presence, tasting his presence, that is part of knowing his heart. It's a beautiful, wonderful, exciting part of it. I, I still want that. But they're not the same thing. And here's what I was missing. Is, and here's how God was answering my prayer without my being aware of it at the time. Is that every time I experienced something that Jesus did and reacted, responded the way that he did, this brought my heart into a bit more overlap with his. So, for example, I'm, I mean experienced hardships that Jesus did. So, for example, I tasted a bit of the things that Jesus did as well. <clears throat> Jesus faced opposition. He's greatly misunderstood. He's mocked. He's scorned. He's called evil. I was done all of those things throughout the media, constantly on television and the front pages of newspapers. All of those things were done to me. <clears throat> and he was slandered and lied about and persecuted for righteousness. And his response, he persevered. He forgave his enemies. And he forgave his friends who betrayed him. We had people from our church who became false witnesses against us because they were unhappy, they hadn't received leadership positions or whatever. So I had to forgive my enemies. I also had to forgive some of my friends who betrayed me. Jesus learned, he grew in obedience and endurance. He suffered great stress, <clears throat> and yet he continued to surrender to God's will. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt abandoned. Very deeply he felt this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what is his response? He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He feels abandoned, but he still chooses to turn toward the Father. So to some degree in a range of areas, I have felt like Jesus and I have acted the way Jesus did. So in this way, I have shared in his suffering and... And this strengthens, <clears throat> this strengthens the friendship. There's, there's a, an intimacy that comes from this, that comes from the shared experience of suffering. He knows what I'm going through. I know that he knows. We don't have to talk about it. We understand each other without talking about these things. And so there's a side of Jesus that I think we cannot know apart from tasting suffering. Right. So he answered my prayer. He answered my wave started prayer in an unexpected way. And he ended up drawing me closer to his heart through that shared suffering. So I invite you to pray that prayer as well. I don't think it'll take you to prison. But just I want to pursue your heart. What, what do you have to do, God, to draw me closer to your heart? I want to understand the breadth of the heart of Jesus. And because of what I went through, my heart now 
overlaps more, more and more with this. So I want to encourage you with that even as you go into difficulties, as you go through times of testing, that this is one of the ways that God draws you closer to his heart. You come to know his heart more. So Lord, I ask that you make us hungry for you. Even for those who are already hungry, more hunger. (laughs) I ask for an impartation, just a gift from you. It's a gift to be hungry for you. So give us that gift and just put it into us, a, a, a thirst, a hunger for you that will drive us to run after your heart, that will drive us through through uncertainty and through darkness to still run after you. So Lord, I want to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when my heart drifts from you, remind me of what is most important. Pull me back into that pursuit. I want to finish my time here just praying for you, over you, what I prayed for myself and for my family many, many times in prison. So Father God, I ask you to pour into us, your sons and daughters, the courage and the strength, the confidence and the hope, the endurance, the perseverance and steadfastness of Jesus. Pour into us, your sons and daughters, the spirit of your son, that we may run the race set before us and finish well, a beautiful bride purified in the fires of faithful obedience, tested and found worthy of her beloved, of Jesus, the King of glory. So I bless you in the name of my King.